welcome to New Planet, a podcast where we inform and enable a sustainable lifestyle. Hey, Aiden. Hi, Xander. Episode three! Hey, we're here. We're doing it. It's episode three. Welcome to episode three. What's the what's the title of this episode? <clears throat> Same as the last one, just add a part two to the end. How did we get here? The, the story of sustainability, part two. We're going to be talking more about contemporary sustainability, starting kind of in the 18th and 19th century up to modern times. But before we, we get into that, we got to start our episode with a quote. And so this episode's quote is from our boy, Albert Einstein, from 1929. He said, imagination is more important than knowledge. So, um, yeah, I guess there's a little more background to that. It was from an interview. You know, this was Xander's quote. I chose the last one. So I wanted to make sure it was legit. So I, (laughs) I went and looked it up. And yeah, so it was from an interview. Somebody asked him. So you trust your imagination, or you trust more to your imagination than to your knowledge? And he said, I am enough of an artist to draw freely upon my imagination. Imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited. Imagination encircles the world. It's a pretty cool quote. Um, So yeah, like we said today, we're continuing the history of sustainability. We left off last episode talking about right when the industrial revolution kind of started and industrialization and how uh that idea of man's superiority and domination over nature became kind of prevalent and we talked about the four different ideas of kind of what you're what you believe the the correct uh relationship to nature that man should have and so today we will continue on this topic and we'll talk about <clears throat> The 18th, 19th centuries, sustainability's emergence in that time, and kind of how it arose. And then we'll talk about the 20th century, conservationism and sustainability more in the U.S., and the 60s and 70s environmental movement, kind of counterculture movement tied into that. And then at the end, we will talk about contemporary sustainability. Kind of, I decided to start off contemporary sustainability with the more intergovernmental agreements like the Kyoto Protocol and things that everybody is familiar with, those kind of intergovernmental, international agreements. And that's going to be our episode. I'm excited. Yeah. Let's get into it, man. Do it. So, like I said, 18th, 19th century sustainability. We will look at Europe. And in Europe, around that time and beforehand, there were wood shortages due to high consumption rates, you know, there was high population growth in Europe at that time, and you need wood for a lot of things, for firewood, building ships, building houses, mining, a lot of different things. And so this led to a pretty serious shortage of wood, and it got some people thinking about, you know, how are we going to continue our way of life if wood is not available to us anymore, if we don't have that resource available? And so... Uh, sustainability became more common thought in that time. And an interesting theory that I had read about while I was uh, researching this topic is that the feudal system that was 
famous and prevalent in Europe during medieval times in the Dark Ages. Um, apparently, you know, that led to unclear power and ownership over forests throughout Europe and Central Europe and uh, led to the over-exploitation of forests, which is an interesting point. And so sustainability as an actual term, I guess you could say written down, and the, the, the concrete term of sustainability was first used uh, in Germany in the forestry circles by a guy named um, Alexander, pronounce his name. Ooh, I'm honored. His name is Hans Karl von Karlwitz, and he used the term Nachhalt an der Nutzung. I apologize if I butchered that, but it's my best, hey, my best shot. Be- better than me. And so that term, that German term, translates to sustainable use. And for him, for Hans, that meant um, calling for a balance between harvesting old trees and ensuring that there would be enough young trees to replace them. So if you think back to the previous episode talking about the Mayans and Tikal, they weren't able to really maintain that balance between uh, old and young trees, which led to their their demise as a civilization. And so, yeah, that was what Carl or Hans Karl von Karlowitz's idea was of sustainable use of young and old trees. And so there were some other shortage, uh, or there were some other consequences of the wood shortage and specifically in Britain. It was actually pretty cool. never really thought about this. I guess when we think about the colonization of the Americas, we always think about religious freedom was, I mean, of course, that's a main, a main reason why the colonization of the Americas happened. But um, also, this wood shortage that persisted for, according to my research, centuries, um, it led directly also to this colonization of Americas to the um, emigration from from Britain because the prices of firewood rose as the supply of firewood uh, decreased and so people decided hey I'm getting out of here so they left went to the new world and then proceeded to do the exact same thing over there and deforested <laughs> the east coast classic yeah right you know sometimes we don't learn from our mistakes so yeah an interesting consequence there of that wood shortage Interesting. Yeah, so, like I said, these shortages of resources in the 18th and 19th centuries, they led to people to think about, um, hey, what are we going to do if these resources run out? And uh, a couple of important and influential thinkers of the time, uh, one of them being John Stuart Mill, he was one of the more influential philosophers of all of British history, and he had this idea of a stationary state, which meant uh, a stationary condition of capital and population, but not of human improvement. And so humans could improve morally and spiritually, but when it came to like material improvement and population, so increasing population, we would have to learn to live in a stationary state. So not having perpetual growth, both of people and of capital. And he said that, I seriously hope or sorry, I sincerely hope for the sake of posterity um, that the world's population will be content to be stationary long before necessity compels it to be. So it's an interesting perspective, especially back then, you know, with the Industrial Revolution and growth being a serious part of, of life in, in all Western nations at that point. 
Well, I think the idea of a stationary state is quite interesting because you have to think about what uh, what state we're considering to be stationary because we have these other countries in the world that are still industrializing to you know get to this level of Western industrialization that we have currently in America and Europe. So is the stationary state the modern lifestyle that we live or is it a more like an earlier idea of human, I, I guess like the stationary state is coming from capital and population rather than improvement. So never mind. I mean, I still think that it's a valid point. Like that, Af- you know, countries that have, that have developed and did not live in a stationary state that, you know, seeked perpetual growth and, you know, both in population and in capital they got to that point and today that's just it's a very important issue because the the countries that are still developing and perhaps aspiring to reach the type of <clears throat> like economic um level that you know the US and other european countries are at you know they want to use the same resources that we use to get to to the place that we are at now but it's important to not let that happen and for the sake of the environment. Not that they shouldn't develop, but that they need to develop sustainably, you know, sustainable development. I just think that the, uh, this idea of stationary condition is, is hard. To, like, what's the point of stationary when it comes to population and capital? And, like, have, are we already past it? Should we try to stay where we are right now? Like, no more kids, no more... No more money in the economy and eventually and get to this point where we can be sustainable but i think that we need to have these capital investments and these people that are aware of the situation to make a change and be more sustainable so it's kind of this weird i don't know i'm, I'm curious to hear other sustainable theories because i'm not sure how i really feel about this idea of a stationary state i yeah, think it has sure. some good but i don't know yeah it's a tough one i mean it goes against pretty much everything that we've grown up learning or learned yeah. in the U.S. for centuries. So, um, so yeah, the next guy that talked about sustainable ideas was Alfred Russell Wallace, who, along with Darwin, well, I guess not along with him, but independently conceived the idea of evolution through national, uh, natural selection. And his quote, or not his quote, but his idea was that he <clears throat> he saw the damage that was done by using, this is a quote, the reckless destruction of the stored up products of nature. And with regard to the use of coal, oil, gas, and minerals, uh, he said that the exploitation of rainforests was an injury done to posterity. And he wrote these ideas in his book called The Wonderful Century, which was kind of like a, a book about looking back at the the 19th century. He wrote this in 1898. I would say he was probably ahead of his time in terms of sustainability and sustainable development because he really saw the problems that that were arising with, you know, unlimited extraction of resources and just perpetual growth. Um, I think a, a fun fact when it comes to the exploitation of the rainforests is this idea, you know, it's hard to kind of quantify the value that the rainforests have to the global global ecosystem. 
And in the 1990s, a scientist named Robert Costanza did some research to try to quantify the rainforests, and he came up with a number of about $33 trillion. So that's around the value that the rainforests have for the planet, and that's just like biodiversity, carbon CO2 extraction and production of oxygen, and just resources prevalent inside of the rainforest. So there is wow. huge value that the rainforests contribute to our global society, and we really need to take care of them. Yeah, for sure. I think sometimes I, I don't like the idea of like translating the value of nature into like a monetary terms, but at the same time, you know, sometimes you got to, you know, a lot of people think in terms of money and you got to show them, you know, maybe the importance of something from a different perspective. And if money is going to get people to think about it in a more serious way, then maybe that's the way you got to go. I agree. So it's, it's cool to see that some people were thinking about this back then in the, in the 19th century. And so those are the, the, the couple of theories that I thought were pretty important from that time and from the 18th and 19th centuries. And a little overview of, of why sustainability arose during that time. And so we'll move on now to the next century, which is the 20th century, something that everybody's a little bit more familiar with probably. And we'll focus more on the, the US here. And we'll start off with good old Teddy Roosevelt um, what a the guy. father, the father <laughs> of conservationism in the U.S. pretty much. And in 1905, he created the United States Forest Service, and their mission is to sustain the health, diversity, and productivity of the nation's forests and grasslands to meet the needs of present and future generations. Go to your national parks, please. Yeah, really, they're, they're amazing beautiful. and beautiful. Check them out. Shout out to Teddy <laughs> Roosevelt. Seriously, what a guy. And so an interesting fact while I was looking up information about the U.S. Forest Service is that in 2009, they had a total budget of $5.5 billion, and 42% of that was spent fighting fires. So Whoa. over $2 billion spent fighting fires. Um, that's wild. And, you know, it's only going to get worse. So, you know, there's going to be billions of dollars spent fighting fires. You know, it's a little sad, but, you know, thank God they even exist, right? No, don't thank God. Thank Teddy Roosevelt. Thanks, God. <laughs> yeah. Thank Thanks, Ted. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> after 1905, we had a couple wars. So, there's not too much information. Two of them, right? <laughs> Two, I think so. <laughs> World wars, you would say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might call them world wars. Um, so there wasn't too much focus on sustainability and the environment at that point. And then afterwards, um, once things settled down, we had more of a focus on environmentalism, on sustainability. And I would say that the next big milestone in sustainability would be the publication of Silent Spring by Rachel Carson which a lot of people call like the true beginning of the sustainability movement in the U.S. And if you're not familiar with this book, uh, it focuses mostly on just human effects on nature and the environment and focusing mostly on pesticide use and just kind of um, 
indiscriminate use of pesticides, I should say. And one of the pesticides that she focused on the most was DDT, which was being used at that time to prevent the spread of certain diseases among United States troops. It was used in the war in World War II, I believe. And afterwards was used also to spread, or to, not to spread, but to prevent the spread of malaria um, by killing mosquitoes. And it was successful at that. But Rachel Carson said that, and there is evidence as well that shows that DDT has harmful effects on the environment, specifically predatory birds like the bald eagle, osprey, and the peregrine falcon. Apparently it causes uh, eggshell thinning among those types of birds, which reduces their populations. And she also accused the chemical industry of spreading disinformation about these pesticides. So this was also right in the middle of the counterculture movement of the 60s. And at that time, it was also that counterculture movement was spreading the idea of back to the land and back to nature, where people would move out away from cities and live in communes, you know, away from the city, out in nature. And so this definitely, this book was published at a time where it resonated with a lot of people who were tired of environmental exploitation and environmental injustice. So it kind of kicked off a lot of stuff, as we'll see. And one of those things was Earth Day in Ooh. 1970. Uh, this was partly in response to the Santa Barbara oil spill of 1969. That wasn't like what created it, but it was kind of the last straw. You know, this at that time, the Santa Barbara oil spill was the largest spill in U.S. history, and now it is the third largest after the Exxon Valdez and Deepwater Horizon. So uh, it was a huge deal, and it really got people pretty pissed off and. People were already talking about creating an Earth Day, and that was kind of the last straw, like I said. So 1970, the next year, was the first Earth Day, April 22nd. Definitely one of my top five holidays. Big fan of oh, Earth yeah. Day. See, so next step, though, get work off on Earth Day. And then go volunteer a... and save the yes. planet. Plant some trees. Exactly. Yes. It's a nice day. I love Earth Day. I mean, it's not Halloween, but still a good holiday. <laughs> Um, and then the same year, in 1970, they also created the EPA, and by they, I mean the United, the United States government, <laughs> and the EPA had a mission to, according to their website, protect human health and the environment, and I mean, it's pretty basic, but they go into a little bit more depth. So apparently, the EPA works to ensure that Americans have clean air, land, and water, that National efforts to reduce environmental risks are based on the best available scientific information. That federal laws protecting human health and the environment are administered and enforced fairly, effectively, and as Congress intended. That sounds awesome. There are a few more things, but yeah, so that is ideally what the EPA does. Uh, Good thing they do that, right? Every day. That's why the EPA administrator was a coal lobbyist. You know, not a big deal. Hmm. <laughs> a little controversy there. <laughs> so, um, when the EPA was first created in, in 1970, there was, <clears throat> according to the staff that 
were the first staff that were hired there at the APA. They were very excited. They said there was an enormous sense of purpose and excitement and that the agency, they were, there was an expectation that the agency was going to do something about the problem. So tens of thousands of people applied to the EPA. They were very excited to do something about, for example, that oil spill, preventing such spills from happening again and cleaning it up. And when I read this, you know, it made me happy to think about that enthusiasm, but it was also a little depressing at the same time, because as I just said, um, yeah, our EPA administrator right now was a coal lobbyist who lobbied for, I think it was like a decade or so against environmental legislation in the Obama administration. He doesn't believe in climate change, or at least he does, and he thinks that it's not an actual crisis. Uh, he does not believe that the that climate change is an existential threat. And that boy's name is Andrew Wheeler. Andrew Wheeler. What a stand up guy. And before that, it was Scott Pruitt, who was not any better. So, yeah, reading that there was all these people that were really excited to actually make a difference, like me and Xander are, then kind of jumping forward to where we are today, to this point where the EPA is filled with people who don't actually care about the environment clearly or do not understand the science at the very least. And um, yeah, it's a little sad to, to think that that the, the excitement that these people felt was really just like destroyed through lobbying and special interests. Um, and I guess for me on a positive note, it really just motivates me more to like dedicate my time and my life to these issues because I can't really just watch those things happen anymore and not do anything about it. So I had just a little piece of my mind there, but no, I absolutely agree with you. I think that understanding the current state of the EPA and the administration and knowing that we need to work together to really make this impact. And we, we understand that global warming or climate change is real and a problem that we need to solve. So thanks for listening. Let's solve this problem. I'm stressed out now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so getting back to the 70s and maybe a little optimism about that time, the 70s not only had Earth Day and the EPA, but there was a bunch of legislation that got passed in just several years that uh, is some of the more important legislation in U.S. history, at least from an environmental standpoint. So we had the National Environmental Protection Act, which requires federal agencies to assess the environmental impacts uh, or effects of their proposed actions prior to making decisions. So that was a landmark uh, legislation right there. Not to not to get political again or super political, but these acts that were passed in the early 70s were done by Richard Nixon, who was a Republican president. So pretty interesting just food for thought i guess yeah i guess it shows that uh, you know the people have a lot more power than sometimes they think they do because if you put enough pressure on the government you can get them to do something that might not align with their actual views um and the counterculture movement and environmentalism was just that in the 60s and 70s um so then again in 1970 there was a revision of the clean air act which was actually passed originally in 1963 but then revised in 1970, and these amendments to it 
they expanded the federal mandate and they required comprehensive federal and state regulations for industrial pollution sources and mobile sources like uh, cars, for example. And then 1972, the Clean Water Act. And the objective of the Clean Water Act is to restore and man maintain the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's waters. And it recognizes the responsibilities of the states in addressing pollution and then also allows the federal government to provide assistance to states in wastewater treatment and the maintaining wetlands. Then next year, 1973, the Endangered Species Act, which was designed to protect the critically imperiled species from extinction, uh, which were a consequence of economic growth and development untampered uh, or untempered by adequate concern and conservation. So I like that they actually include that it's yeah. a consequence of economic growth and development. <laughs> Next year, 1974, the Safe Drinking Water Act. So does the Safe Drinking Water Act have something to do with putting fluoride in the water? Is that part of Safe Drinking Water? So it, the Safe Drinking Water Act doesn't mean that we have to put fluoride in the water. It, um, <clears throat> putting fluoride in water is a decision that's made by local municipalities. So like it would be like the city of Seattle for you or something. And for me, the city of San Diego, I guess, mm -hmm. would decide, hey, we want to put fluoride in the water. Um, the Safe Drinking Water Act requires the EPA to determine like levels of contaminants in water and um, they set a maximum contaminant level goal, MCLG, and for fluoride that's four parts per million. So oh, it's nothing. Yeah, not a lot. But yeah, so the Safe Drinking Water Act does have implications for fluoride in water, but just in terms of the EPA determining like what the safe level is for fluoride to be in your water. And then that decision to put it in is made locally by the municipality wherever you live. Okay, interesting. Those are some of the more important acts that I wanted to highlight. And that was what, one, two, three, four, five acts there in four years, plus the creation of Earth Day and the creation of the EPA. Nice. And there were a lot more like other environmental acts that were passed before and after this. So. Um, yeah, it was a very important time for sustainability. Seriously. That is what I had for 20th century sustainability. So the next section we'll be talking about is contemporary sustainability. And I decided to start this section with the report, also called Our Common Future. It is a report that was headed by the three-time Prime Minister of Norway, Brundtland, and she chaired this uh, World Commission on Environment and Development, and they spent a while creating this report, which would be called the Brundtland Report in her name, and it was essentially called for a multilateral search for global sustainable development. It also created a definition of sustainable development, which is uh, development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So again, that idea of posterity and future generations. So yeah, and this report uh, led into a bunch of international protocols and agreements. Um, the, the nearest one to this report was the Montreal Protocol, which was in 1989. 
And this was in response to, um, to scientific discoveries that the use of chemicals and, and gases like chlorofluorocarbons were leading to the depletion of the ozone. And like the stuff in hairspray? Yeah, exactly. Aerosols. That's probably a better word that more people would understand. <laughs> um, but yeah, the use of aerosols, and it led to the depletion of the ozone layer. And this protocol was called, and it's usually referenced as like the protocol, the international agreement, because every country that was involved with it and the speed with which it happened, it was all unheard of. And they were able to have this Montreal Protocol, and they phased out substances that led to ozone depletion. And, I mean, maybe if I'm going to play devil's advocate and give a bad side to this, I would say that the only reason that it was such a big uh, success was because getting rid of aerosols is not really something that changes our way of life in any real serious degree. So countries didn't really have a problem with, you know, no, oh, let's get rid of aerosol, it's not a big deal. But, you know, when we have these uh, following protocols and um, conferences on climate change, you know, that requires actual changes to uh, ways of life. So that's why we're having a lot more trouble with those. So then in 1992, we had the Agenda 21, which was an action for an action agenda for the UN and individual governments for uh, pollution and climate change. And this was a result of the, the summit in Rio de Janeiro, which actually led to my next uh, international agreement, which is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC. And later that decade in 1997, the Kyoto Protocol which was another protocol that focused on climate change and reducing greenhouse gas emissions internationally. And so these were some of the important agreements that occurred in the 90s, and I guess starting in 89, I should say, and then throughout the 90s. And examples of an international effort to act sustainably to a certain degree and to reduce pollution and greenhouse gas emissions and the only problem I would say with them, well, not the only one, but one of the main problems with them is that they're non-binding agreements. So none of these agreements actually required any of the countries to do what they say they would do. Um, although they did in the Montreal Protocol. That is, like I said, one of the more successful agreements. But the ones with regard to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, there's no penalty really for not reaching your goals in regards to reducing your greenhouse gas emissions. And so it's definitely a, a talking point and something that needs to be worked on. Yeah, I agree. I think the accountability is a very essential part of creating productive legislation. And then jumping forward to 2015, we have the Paris Climate Agreement, which is the more recent international agreement that was involved with uh, climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. The aim of the Paris Agreement was more specific with regard to keeping global temperature rise below a certain 
degrees Celsius, which was two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. <clears throat> and this was the agreement that President Trump pulled the United States out of because he felt as if, if it was um, unfair to the United States that we would have to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions that would essentially compromise our economy and whatnot. Well, I think that economic growth doesn't necessarily have to be inhibited by sustainability because think about the if there were regulations on emissions or other things that would push uh, entrepreneurs or businesses to create more sustainable products, there would be this incentivized push towards that. But I'm no expert in economics, but I th- like I think that would be an interesting something interesting to consider is the implication of the advancement in technology and invention for more sustainable goods if it's incentivized by a government or sure i guess we just haven't known uh we haven't known economic growth so far without that growth involving extractivism and fossil fuels and at the same time it's not hard to see that uh our president is more interested in coal and fossil fuel production than he is in renewable energy. So it makes sense that for him, it would cause economic harm for us to reduce uh, fossil fuel uh, extraction and coal extraction, for example. Right. That's what the status quo is. You know, we are a fossil fuel society. So yeah. that this transition that we're currently in is going to be difficult to solve, but it's necessary we will need to solve this problem or perish yeah and these agreements are key to that you know we can't have isolationism and just each country doing whatever they want to there has to be some international cooperation to some degree in order to have serious impact on um, the pollution that we're making so um, yeah i agree with that it comes to it comes back to accountability you know we need to keep each other accountable and i think that idea is one of the main reasons why we want to create this podcast and community around sustainability so we have individuals coming together and keeping each other accountable for the impact that they have on the environment so it all comes back to accountability and balance yeah. and no matter what the scale is it's that's kind of core to being sustainable so on a, on a better note, I guess, there is some current action being taken towards sustainability. So we have Greta Thunberg, the Swedish activist who started the Fridays for Future movements by striking from schools outside of the Swedish parliament. So she's a Swedish girl and really created this movement towards these uh, student protests on sustainability. Yeah. Didn't, people... you, didn't you attend one of those? I sure did. Um, in May, I believe. Yeah, I went to one. There weren't a lot of people down here, at least the one that I went to. Um, but the fact is that there were people there, people that were younger than me and, you know, students, people that essentially don't have a political voice yet because they don't have the right to vote. Um, and millions of them around the world are telling people that do have the right to vote and adults that have more power than them to make a difference. And it's pretty incredible to see that. (laughs) And it's really uplifting for sure. And um, actually, 
it's when I was looking up information about Greta, I found an article that talked about how the OPEC, the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, they had a meeting and the Secretary General of the of the OPEC, um, he had said that he was or he was complaining that there were unscientific attacks on the oil industry by climate change uh, campaigners and that he called Greta Thunberg and the Fridays for Future movement, the essentially the student protests, and he called those uh, perhaps the greatest threat to our industry going forward. And, you know, obviously Greta took this as a compliment because we want this movement to be a threat to them because in the end, our goal is to phase out of fossil fuels and not make them be profitable anymore, essentially. So. And I think uh, another fun fact about Greta is that she started these protests when she was 15. She's 16 now, but just this idea of action, you know, you don't have, however young or old you are, it's never too early or too late to start. So don't be discouraged by the current state of affairs because you can make a difference yeah. as an individual. For our podcast, we say that our mission is to enable a sustainable lifestyle, not only to inform one, but to enable one. So we always want to kind of tell you guys, uh, tell the listeners what you can do to make an actual difference. And usually we'll do that related to the subject that we're talking about for this episode. And so, I mean, this is an episode about history, but now that we're talking about um, contemporary uh, sustainability action and climate change action, and just perception of sustainability. Yes, exactly. Uh, our success, our suggested action for you guys is to find your local Fridays for Future chapter. Um, you can go to their website and just search up Fridays for Future, and they have you know a map where you can see where there is a strike happening near you. Some people do it every week, um, which is a pretty big commitment. Other people, there are other kind of more scheduled and large uh, global strikes that happen. I think the next one is in September, I want to say. And you can go and find what the one closest to you is, and you can uh, probably email the person that's organizing it if their information is up there. But uh, yeah, like Xander said, I did this uh, a few months ago, and it just feels good. You know, a lot of people came up to us on the street while we were doing it and like just praised us for it. You also meet a lot of people who are interested in the same things as you that are making a difference and want to make a difference. And so it's a good way to like network and you know get your name out there and talk to people that are also interested in, in sustainability and climate change. So. And when you do attend one of these Friday for Future strikes or protests, feel free to tag us in your post at New Planet on Instagram. We'd love to see what our listeners are doing and like, really build this community around sustainability and reinforce that action yeah. towards a sustainable future. So, Yeah, I know that the next time I go to one, I'll definitely post it on our Instagram. I hope you guys can like see that. And I think just like seeing somebody else do something is a good way to motivate you and be like, oh, like I can do that too. It's not that hard. So... Thanks for listening to our show on the history of sustainability. We really hope you enjoyed it. 
check out our Instagram at newplanet, and feel free to send us an email at newplanetpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. As always, I'm Aiden Hirsch. I'm Xander Kipp. See you next time.